In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. For those of you who are dyed-in-the-wool Anglicans, you may have noticed that since the start of the summer, the lectionary has assigned uh, the book of Romans for our New Testament epistle readings. Perhaps no single book of the Bible has had more of an influence on history than Paul's letter to the Romans. From St. Augustine to Martin Luther to John Wesley to Karl Barth, all of these men's lives were profoundly changed from the book of Romans. In addition to these giants, other countless men and women through the centuries have experienced God's power in this book. Famous preachers have given famously long sermon series on the book of Romans. James Montgomery Boyce spent eight years preaching through the book of Romans. Martin Lloyd-Jones spent 14 years preaching through the book of Romans. I think just the thought of such a sermon series might single-handedly make you want to become an Anglican who follows the lectionary. If you are new to Anglicanism, the lectionary is just the prayer book's assigned readings uh, for worship on Sunday. It takes us through the Bible every three years, and the, the point is that, well, one, not to have 14-year sermon series in just one book, but also to ensure that the preacher doesn't just pick and choose his own favorite verses but that all of the Bible is preached through for God's people to hear. And this summer, its New Testament readings are assigned in the book of Romans. Well, if these great ministers and their great sermon series teach us anything, it's that there are a wealth of riches in the book of Romans. If you've never read through or studied the book of Romans, this is a great time, if you're at uh, St. Philip's, to do so. Our rector has spent the last year and a half working through the first eight chapters of Romans in his Thursday Bible study. So let me encourage you, for the remainder of the summer, jump in to the book of Romans. Uh, he'll resume it in the fall, and you can find all of his past Bible studies on our website. I guarantee you, whatever effort you put in to this book of Romans, you will be repaid a hundredfold. Well, in our passage this morning, we come to a high point in the book of Romans, as we could spend uh, months probably on these 14 verses alone. But what I want to do today is, is sort of zoom in, swoop into the middle of this book, and just focus on one single verse this morning and try to draw out some of its treasure for us today. That verse is verse 13 of Romans chapter 8. It says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Perhaps no one has spent more time on this one verse than the 17th century Englishman John Owen. His book, The Mortification of Sin, is just over 100 pages on this one single verse alone. So I hope to incorporate some of his insights, not nearly to that length, uh, as I answer three questions this morning. First, what exactly does Paul mean in this verse? What does he mean by these terms, the flesh and the deeds of the body? Secondly, how in the world is this verse good news? Especially for folks in our modern day who probably, if they understand what this verse is saying, aren't jumping up and down for joy. And finally, how can we actually do what Paul says in this verse? The first two questions I hope we can get through fairly quickly. The last one I want to spend the bulk of our time on. So, what does Paul mean? How is it good news? 
and how can we do what he says. First, what does Paul mean in this verse? He says, if you live according to the flesh. What, what does he mean by the flesh? Well, he actually tells us in the previous chapter, verse 5 of chapter 7, he says the flesh isn't the physical body. Instead, he's referring to sinful passions. That's also what he has in mind when he says the deeds of the body in the second half of the verse. He's referring to the external expression of what happens when one yields to the inner sinful desires of the heart. So it needs to be said at the outset that Paul doesn't have a negative view of the body or of the material world in general. He's, he's not like the ancient Greeks who believed that the body was inherently bad. Just the opposite, actually. The unanimous teaching of Scripture is that God made human beings very good and upright, both in their bodies and souls. And it was only after man's fall in Genesis 3 that he became corrupted in his body and soul. So Paul's not against the body per se. He's not against the physical world. He's not even against physical desires. What he is against here is sinful desire, disordered passions, dis desires that go in the wrong direction to the wrong degree. It's desire gone mad that he's talking about. So it's precisely at this point that we are confronted with just how ludicrous Paul sounds to our modern ear. For Paul to say that we must put something to death inside of us runs completely antithetical to how the modern man views himself. In his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman, who's going to be a speaker at next year's Mere Anglicanism Conference, he traces modern man, uh, the, the history of how modern man has come to view himself. And according to Truman, modern man doesn't believe in denying his inner self. His desires are, in fact, what make him who he is. His authentic self is what he feels on the inside. So certainly modern man must not suppress his desires, but express his desires if he wants to live a true and happy life. Man's greatest problem, Truman says, is, is not in here, it's, it's out there. His greatest threat comes from the outside, from society, from those who seek to impose and conform some external standard to him. And these aren't just the views of some select academics in an ivory tower. These are the ideas that are in the air that you and I breathe. They're inescapable. Almost every commercial, every song, every children's movie has this theme to it. True happiness is found by living according to who you are on the inside, by expressing your desires no matter what tradition or religion or your family or anyone else says. So if this is how modern man understands himself, how in the world is this verse actually good news? That's our second question. How is this verse good news? Well, it becomes good news when you begin to question how modern man understands himself. Modern man believes that all people are essentially born good today, or at the very least, born as blank slates. If people then are basically good, then it makes sense to encourage people to simply live out what is already inside of them. But there's good reason to question this view of humanity. Just think, in the last 50 years, these ideas have become so prevalent, so taken for granted. 
Now more than ever, people are called to live according to their truth. Now more than ever, people are being encouraged to yield to and express their inner desires. But let me ask you, is there more peace, more harmony of late as we've encouraged people to do this? Are people happier today because of this notion? You see, every doctor knows In fact, that the most important thing you can do in treating a patient is to come to an accurate diagnosis of the problem. According to a recent Johns Hopkins study, the number one cause of serious medical errors is a misdiagnosis. Wherever there's a misdiagnosis, the real cause of the problem continues on, undetected, and the disease progresses. And the results can often be fatal. Romans 8.13 is precisely good news because it correctly diagnoses the real, undetected, most basic problem in the world today. It says that the root cause of all the misery in the world is that there is a beast inside you and me that wreaks havoc when it is allowed to run free. It destroys lives and families and communities. It's the beast of our own sinful nature what Paul calls the flesh. You see, the Bible offers the most plausible explanation of the world's problems today. It's more realistic, it's more intellectually honest than the approach, I would say, of modern man. Man, according to the Bible, is no longer what he once was. He's not as he ought to be. He is cursed. He's infected with sin. Since Adam, man is now born with a propensity toward evil. There is within him at work from his very conception a principle of death. Any good that comes from man is not a result of anything inherent in him, but is solely due to God's common grace. The Bible says that man is a slave to his own sinful desires to his flesh and because of that he's hostile to God and he's bent in on himself but this verse doesn't just give us an accurate diagnosis it also gives us the right remedy the counterintuitive solution to our problem in this verse is that happiness joy abundant life is found not in yielding to our sinful desires but instead renouncing them Proverbs says that there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. And what did Jesus say? He said, well, he didn't say, follow me and I'll help you live your truth. He didn't come to bless our inner desires. Instead, he said, whoever would save his life would lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That's what Jesus demands of his followers. And it's because he's not actually against them, it's because he's for them that he makes this command. He demands that we renounce ourselves because he's, in so doing, we gain the life that we all ultimately long for. Listen to the promise at the end of the verse in Romans 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if you, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, then you will live. So how can we actually do that? 
That's the final question. What does it look like to do this in practice? Well, the first thing we must do is recognize that we're jumping right in the middle of an argument that Paul has been making for seven chapters. Paul's already outlined man's perilous position. He's already said that mankind is hopelessly enslaved to his sin, and there's nothing he can do about it. And then this is what separates Christianity from self-help programs. He must turn from himself. Many folks try to put to death the deeds of the body by sheer willpower. But doing that is kind of like playing that old arcade game, whack-a-mole. You know what I'm talking about? You, you might hit the mole, and it comes out of one hole, but then if you hit it, it it'll go back in, but it's going to pop out. You can be assured of another hole. If you simply apply your own willpower to your gluttony, you will be guaranteed to find pride or greed or something else popping up elsewhere. When you attack your pride in your own strength, you might find lust or envy, but you'll be finding some expression of sin popping up somewhere else. If sin is not chiefly just an action or a behavior that we do, but a condition, a power, a beast inside of us, then we must upend the mole itself, not just beat it back into the hole. Paul has already said that all of Adam's children are hopelessly lost in themselves. The third collect for the, Sunday, the collect for the third Sunday in Lent puts it like this. It says, we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. But what separates Christianity from, from all other religions and and all self-help programs is the person and work of Jesus Christ. The first thing we must do to put our sinful nature to death is to see what Jesus Christ has already done. Instead of punishing or putting an end to us for our sin, God himself offers himself in love. Charles Wesley put it in a hymn that we will sing at communion, God the Son left his Father's throne above so free, so infinite, his grace emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. God offers himself in order to pardon the penalty of sin. But he doesn't just forgive sin and then leave the world stuck in this tragic disease. No, Jesus came into the world to save us from sin's penalty and then also to save us from sin's power. That's what, Jesus, that's what Paul discusses in Romans 3 through 7, that Jesus has decisively broken sin's power in the world. This principle of death that's been running rampant in the world has been once for all conquered by Jesus' death and resurrection. And what's true of Jesus now can be true for you by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence inside us and empowers the Christian with the new risen life of Jesus. Paul says elsewhere that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, dead in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, but God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He didn't come to make even bad people good people. He came to make dead people alive. The Holy Spirit awakens dead men and women and unites them to Jesus by faith. They get connected to Jesus' resurrected life, as he said, like branches to a vine. 
This is the first step that we must do in putting our sinful nature to death. We must first see what God and Christ has already done for the Christian. Sin has been pardoned. Charles Wesley also said that the only sin that can be broken is the sin that has already had its debt canceled. The only sin that can be broken is the sin that, can ha- that already has its debt canceled. Christ has struck the decisive blow against the sinful nature by his victorious resurrection. But there is nevertheless this wounded, this fledgling sinful nature that still remains in the Christian. Paul describes it in his own experience uh, in the end of chapter 7. It's included in the reading that we heard earlier. Paul says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's the the new nature, his new nature in the spirit that he's talking about. But he says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. If the first thing that we must do is look to what Jesus has done, then secondly, we must also do something ourselves. Look at what Paul says in this verse. He doesn't tell us to just turn everything over to God. He says that we must do something. If we are going to do it, we have to do it not in our own strength, but he says, by the Spirit. We are to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. We work, yes, but ultimately it is God working in and through us. We exercise the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says, Christian, work out your salvation because it is God who's working in you. But notice how Paul says we should work in Romans 8.13. He doesn't say to simply feel bad about your sin. He doesn't say go away and think about it, maybe pray about it. He doesn't even say turn it over to the Lord. He says kill it. Don't mess around. Don't play around with it. Kill it. Put it to death. He said, I see in my members another law waging war against me, so I must fight back. There is a militancy to the Christian life. Is that how you view the Christian life today? Notice the battle's not with other people. It's not out there. It's not with Democrats or Republicans or Muslims or Jews or anyone else. The battleground of Christianity is in our very hearts. Ed Welch, in his book, A Banquet in the Grave, puts it like this. He says, there is a mean streak to the Christian life. Underneath what seems to be the placid demeanor of those who are not ruled by their desires is a heart of a warrior. Self-control is not for the timid. If we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Jesus Christ, we also demand of ourselves a hatred for sin. The only possible attitude towards out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. If you're a Christian, is this how you view your life? Or have you been playing around today with Christianity? Have you been trifling with Jesus Christ? Or are you in an all-out war? This kind of understanding dramatically changes how we approach things in the Christian life. 
Ed Welch says, there's something about war that sharpens the senses. You hear a a twig snap or the rustling of the leaves and you're in attack mode. Someone coughs and you're ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant. A wartime mentality changes how you approach the Christian life. It changes how you approach going to church. All of a sudden, church is the gathering of soldiers behind enemy lines. We huddle together to encourage one another and discuss battle strategies. We recall our marching orders. We go to the infirmary of God's word and his table to receive treatment for our wounds. We come together to seek reprieve from an exhausting battle. Is there a militancy in your Christian life? Paul says, kill your sin. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of, the God, of God, and put it to death. One of the things that I have found helpful in my own life in trying to fight this battle was given to me by my own college minister. It's an acronym called ANTHEM. If you are looking for some practical wisdom on how to kill your own sin, I commend to you this acronym, ANTHEM. The A stands for AVOID. Avoid the situations and scenarios when your flesh rears its ugly head. This means you have to become aware of the patterns and the places where it does that. Paul says later in the book of Romans to make no provision for the flesh. Simply avoiding opportunities for sin is not enough. It doesn't deal with our hearts. But there is biblical wisdom in avoiding the places and the people and the factors that lead us into indulging our sinful desires. Remember, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. So that's the A. The N stands for ferociously saying no. Against, uh, again, it's not, an, uh, it's not enough in and of itself just to simply say no, but if we're going to fight sin, we must be prepared for it to come our way. And when it does, We have to be ready and adamantly opposed to it, or the victory will be lost. John Owen famously said that you must be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. We must be absolutely opposed to our desires. We must say no immediately. But next, we must turn. That's the T. We must turn our minds from the promise of temptation to a superior promise in the gospel. Merely avoiding and saying no is not going to suffice. You have to move from defense to offense. You must attack the promises of sin with the promises of Jesus. This is hard work. It requires that you actually know the promises of Jesus. Our sinful desires, they promise so much. They seem so real but they're lying to us. We must fight the lies of the flesh with the truth of God's word. The psalmist asks, how can a young man keep his way pure? He says, by guarding it according to your word. He says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We must use the sword of the spirit to fight the inferior promises of sin with the superior promises of Jesus. And then next, we must hold. That's the H. In fighting against sin, many give up after just a few seconds. They're taken by surprise that the struggle continues on. They tried for a moment, but the opposition was just too hard. 
we must be prepared to hold the line. In any battle against any formidable opponent, you must expect to slug it out. Hold the promises of God before your eyes. And the next E is to enjoy them, to actually enjoy the superior satisfaction that is found in God alone. Part of the problem is that so many have so little desires for God. They find Him so undesirable. We hear Jesus say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But we don't really care about seeing God. God seems distant, intangible, unappealing to so many. Their capacity for delighting in the person of Jesus is is undeveloped. If you want to have success in fighting sin, you have to cultivate the capacity of finding supreme joy in God alone. His promises must become more real, more tangible than what temptation offers. Learn to say along with the psalmist, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I have set the Lord before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the E. And finally, the M stands for move. Move. Find a good work to do and do it with all your might. You were created to create. So find a good work. Move into action. Mow the lawn. Exercise. Write. Call a friend. Use your gifts and energy for finding a good work to do and do it to the glory of God. So anthem. Avoid Say no, turn your mind to the promises of God and hold them there. Enjoy Jesus Christ and move to find a good work to do. Let me now close with this. What do we do in this battle, which we will lose from time to time? And when we fail, the evil one wants you to wallow in your guilt and in your shame. He wants to take you out through the power of these emotions. What do you do in those times? Well, let your guilt drive you to the gospel. Look to the one who made an end of all your sin, who died for sinners and pleads your case before God, not on the basis of how well you fight, but on the basis of his perfect life and death and resurrection. Confess your sins. Receive God's forgiveness. Sometimes it helps to confess to actual people because the assurance of forgiveness can be all the stronger to hear the good news. Let the immutable righteousness of Jesus that's offered to you by faith be your sure foundation. And then take your stand and get back in the fight, knowing that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Beloved, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Amen.